page 47 in your notebooks. And welcome to those who are watching on live stream as well. And it's also page 47 for you. And I want to remind you as to where Lesson 6 fits into our overall curriculum. But I remind you that we have homework that helps prepare you for the times when we come together and we go over the lesson. The homework for this week was pages 49 to uh, 51. And then Dr. Combs has been sending out a, an email with the answers on Tuesdays. So if for any reason you're not getting those emails and you'd like to, then let us know and we'll make sure that you get on the email list. So that just gives you something to do to be in the Word and look up some passages and answer a few questions. But we're starting a new section tonight on the doctrine of the Bible. And on page 47, you see that upper right-hand corner, doctrine of the Bible, and then it also says introduction to the Bible. So I'll explain that in, in a moment. But Master Plan for Life has two parts, as I've been telling you, and we're in part one, which is seeking to answer one question, who am I? Part two will answer why am I here? Part one covers five uh, doctrines to answer fully that question, who am I? Doctrine of God, doctrine of the Bible, doctrine of humanity and sin, doctrine of Christ, and the doctrine of salvation, all of those. We've completed five lessons. All of those were in that first section on the doctrine of God. And now we begin this new section on the doctrine of the Bible, page 47. You see there in the box, it says, top of page 47, Who am I? I am a recipient of the Bible, God's communication to mankind. The doctrine of the Bible, or the fancy term bibliology, is a study of God's communication to mankind. Although God is under no obligation to communicate to mankind, He chose to do so through human language. This means that God has condescended to speak to us in terms that humans can understand. And as a result, we now have specific information about God and ourselves that will assist us in answering this question, who am I? Now, the purpose of the Bible is to enable us to know God's will and to do it. In order to achieve that, it's necessary to understand the nature of the Bible and its significance to our lives. Understanding the nature of the Bible gives meaningful direction in our study of the Bible so that we can apply its truth. So that's what we're going to try to accomplish together in these lessons in this section. So on page 52, page 52, first page of tonight's lesson then on the doctrine of the Bible. And you see at the top there of page 52, we say to consider God in all His greatness, His majesty, and His complexity is an awe-inspiring endeavor. It's impossible for finite and sinful people to grasp the greatness and the goodness of their Creator. Greatness and goodness should ring a bell for you because those were the two broad categories under which the attributes of God that we looked at in section one were, were placed. So you had the character qualities of God's greatness and things like His omnipotence and omniscience and His sovereignty and then of His goodness, things like His mercy, His grace, His love, His, his righteousness. And to grasp both of those categories is still impossible fully for us. And what's more awe-inspiring, middle of that paragraph, is that this infinite God has condescended to communicate to finite individuals. So when we say there He is condescended, what that means is it's a matter of 
grace that he's done so. He stooped down, condescended to give us what's not required of him and is not earned or deserved by us. So therefore, the fact that God has spoken, and spoken in a way that we can understand, we should look at as indeed a great act of grace on his part for our, our benefit. And that's exactly what God has done. In this lesson, we're going to see that God has chosen to reveal himself to humanity through both general and special revelation. Now, when we say revelation, <clears throat> we're not talking about the book in your Bible that has that name. Many of you know that the last book of your Bible is the book of Revelation. Just as an aside, it's not Revelations. It's the book of Revelation. So, it's uh, in fact, in chapter 1 and verse 1, it says that the book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So... There's that book in your Bible, the very last one, Book of Revelation. We did a series on that in our worship service uh, this past year. But when we use the term here, we're not talking about that specific book, but more the concept of revelation, which means this, to make known. To make known. That's what revelation is, to make known. So general, special, that means God has made Himself known in a general way. I'll talk about what we mean by that in a moment but also in a special way. So both of those we're going to see tonight. God making Himself known, general making Himself known, special making Himself known. General revelation, special revelation. So first, God has revealed Himself generally. Now by that, general, we mean this. He's given general information to a general audience. That's what we're saying. General information to a general audience. In fact, the first line there says God has revealed general information regarding Himself to every person. So that's why we call it general revelation. It's general information to a general audience. And it's general in two ways. It's general in its content, that is what it makes known, the content, but also in its recipients. It's general. It's given to, to everyone. So it says there, general information regarding himself to every person. It means that everyone has access to some knowledge of God because of this general making known, general revelation. Now, how so? How has God done this? Well, first of all, you see in your notes there that God has revealed himself through creation. Now, we'll see what the content of this general revelation in creation is below but for now, we're just noting that God has made Himself known in creation by virtue of what He has made, what He has created. That tells us something about Him. So the psalmist says in Psalm 19, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the worlds. And then Romans 1 likewise says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, from what has been created, so that 
people are without excuse. <clears throat> so God has made himself known generally, general information, general audience. One avenue of that is through creation. Now notice with these passages, God reveals, he makes himself known through the creation. That doesn't mean God is part of the creation. I had occasion to talk about this uh, last week, maybe the week before, uh, that we're not pantheists. So pantheist means that God is, pan means uh, all, and so God is all in everything. Certainly God <clears throat> is present in creation, but He's distinct from creation. God is not equivalent to creation in contradiction to the, the pantheist. So my theology professor, when I was in seminary, used to say, if you want to know what the universe, you want to define the universe, the universe is all that is not God. <laughs> that God created the universe. And so it's outside of Him, and he's outside, of, he's outside of it. You see the handiwork in God's handiwork in His creation, but God is not in the creation. The creation is not God. So the tree is not, is not God. I think I mentioned this, Psalm 24 and verse 1, the earth is the Lord's, and the apostrophe S is important rather than the earth is the Lord. The earth is not God. <clears throat> so the, you know, the idea that we get subtly sucked into, that there is a mother earth, <clears throat> uh, the earth is not our, our mother. <laughs> the earth was created by, created by God. Uh, the earth didn't give rise to to us, God gave rise to the earth, and God is the one who gave rise to, to us as, as well. So God reveals himself through creation, but he's not part of creation. He's revealed himself through creation. Secondly, he's revealed himself through human conscience. Romans chapter 2, when Gentiles who do not have the law, <clears throat> excuse me, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts, sometimes accusing them, at other times defending them. So every person has some knowledge of God because of this general making known through creation and through conscience. People no, by virtue of being made in the image of God and thereby having a conscience, all people, all of God's image bearers were made to have a God consciousness. And as a result of that, then they have a conscience and that they know that certain things are, are wrong. Um, they have that written on their hearts, Romans chapter 2 is, is saying, even without the written law. So that means that one of the best arguments for the existence of God is what's called the transcendental argument, another fancy term, the transcendental argument. Transcendental means above. And so God is transcendent. God is above his universe. And the transcendental argument for the existence of God says that there are certain things that are prior to, that are above what we would, what we engage in, what we think about. They're necessary preconditions for us to be able to think at all. There are transcendentals. These things just have to be. 
So you, and, and so the transcendental argument for the existence of God means that you have to assume God in order to be able to deny God. Because in order to make your argument against God, you've got to use some of these transcendentals that could only come from God in order to do it. So one can try to deny God's existence, but you can't make your argument logically if there is no God, because if there is no God, there would be no logic. So when you try to use logic to defeat God, you've also got to now come up with, well, where did the laws of logic come from? And one of my favorite, you should Google this, but you should Google uh, Gordon, or excuse me, Greg Bonson, B-A-H-N, S-E-N, B-A-H-N, S-E-N, Bonson, Greg Bonson. And he uh, was debating an atheist, Gordon Stein, S-T-E-I-N, Stein. And you can find clips of, of this out there years ago, but uh, Gordon Stein, the atheist, you know, in his introductory, you know how these debates go, right? You get to make an introduction, and then you get certain time to make your argument, and then a rebuttal, and all of that. So Stein, the atheist, says, you know, I'm going to show by the laws of logic that God does not exist. <clears throat> and later in the, in the debate, they had a, a Q&A, <clears throat> and the atheist asked Bonson, the Christian, he said, can you think of anything other than God that, um, that we cannot touch, we cannot feel, any of that? And he said, yeah, the laws of logic that, that you said you're using to, to disprove God. So it's a self-defeating self approach to say, I'm going to use these laws of logic, but then you've got to explain where those, where those came from. And you cannot say that God is wrong. <clears throat> if you don't like God, if somebody wants to make the argument that the God who is, is a God who is evil, a God who allows bad things to happen, you hear this kind of thing all the time, right? When people say, I... I could not believe in a God who would allow fill in the blank, right? Natural disasters, you know, cancer, you know, all these, all these horrible things. But when someone does that, what are they appealing to? They're appealing to standards of right and wrong, good and evil. Well, where did these come from? <laughs> Thank you. Poor Julie's back there having to deal with the sound on the... And she's, okay, I can't take that anymore. Give him some, give him some water. <laughs> Thank you. But you're going to say that God is wrong or God is somehow evil, which assumes what? Which assumes some standards of wrong, some standards of right, some standards of good and evil. Well, where do those, where do those come from? You're going to have a hard time coming up with where those, those come from. And I've seen many a debate like that as well, where you've got the person who denies God but also wants to maintain these universal standards of right and wrong. And no ability to answer that. So the transcendental argument for the existence of God actually is the most effective, I'm, I'm convinced. And it's actually quite irrefutable. That's why it's effective. Top of page 53. So this, that's what general revelation is. God making himself known, something about himself known in creation and in conscience. Why has he done it? Here's the purposes. General revelation reveals general truth about, about God. Truth about God. Now, let me, uh, let me just comment on that, truth about God. That when Romans chapter 1, which we have on the previous page, 
we have Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20 on the previous page, but verse 21, Romans 1, 21 says this, Although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. So that passage that we read a bit ago on a previous page about the wrath of God being revealed against all the godlessness and wickedness of humanity who suppress the truth by their wickedness, and then goes on to say, because God has made Himself known in, in creation. And then it says, although they knew then God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. One of the interesting things about that verse, to me at least, is in the, our translations, our English translations, it says what I just quoted, although they knew God. But in Greek, that your New Testament was written in, Romans 1.21 says literally this, although they knew the God. It actually has the definite article before God. The God. That is, it's not just some vague notion of something out there. God has made people to know Him. God, again, made people in His image. We'll see that when we get to the section on, uh, the next section on the doctrine of humanity and sin. Made in His image, made to reflect God, made to know God. This is how, when Adam and Eve are created and God speaks to them, they don't, they don't have to figure it out. They just automatically know who this is. They know it's God. Why do they know it's God? Because they were made to know. God. They were made to know the voice of their Creator. People were made to know God, and in fact, people do know God. This is the reason people hate the voice of God, and where's the voice of God found today? In the Bible. So by nature, in sin nature, people don't like the Bible. And this is why you'll then find, assuming that we're not acting in unnecessarily offensive ways to people, assuming you're being kind, you're representing Christ in an accurate way, then this is the reason that people hate to hear you talk about God. They hate to hear you talk about the Bible because they know God. <laughs> they, they know inherently the voice of, of God, and they recoil from it in sin. And unless God makes a change of heart, people continue to to do that. So they knew the God. People were made to know God. From an examination of Romans 1, 18 through 20, Romans 2, 14 through 15 that we saw on the previous page, you see that general revelation communicates a limited message to mankind. Through it, here's what you get. You get that God exists, you get that God is the creator, and you get that God has standards of right and wrong that, that must be obeyed. So obviously it's not everything about God, but it's enough for people to be accountable to seek God, which unfortunately no one, no one does. Now because of this, <clears throat> because of this truth that everybody knows God inherently, and everybody has been given general information about God, then you can speak to people about God with the confidence that they have some understanding. Now, we're going to see special revelation in the Bible and gives us much more, but they have some understanding. Nobody's ignorant of, completely ignorant of God. 
That's why Paul, the Apostle Paul, when he's in Athens, Greece, in Acts chapter 17, that he can stand up before these pagan philosophers and he doesn't have to prove God to these pagan philosophers, even though he says, you guys have idols all over the city, full of idols, he says, I observed. But then he just says, the one that you worship ignorantly, I'm going to proclaim to you. And then he just proclaims, and he starts in verse 24, Acts 17, 24, the God who made heaven and earth and everything in them. And then he goes on to describe, he just goes on to describe God. He knows they know. And so he appeals to the fact that they, they know. Now, note, you see that note there in italics. While people do have some knowledge of right and wrong, it's only through the Word of God that we can learn the content of all of God's standards of right and wrong. So people know there is a lawgiver because there are laws written on our hearts that we have a conscience until our conscience is seared. If we disobey it long enough, then we don't, then we don't hear it anymore. The Bible talks about that, a seared conscience. But everybody has a conscience. And until that is seared by continually ignoring it, then everybody knows that there are things that are right and wrong and that therefore there is a lawgiver who determines that they're right and wrong. But it's only through Scripture that you learn the content of all of God's standards of right and wrong. Now, we say all. How do you, how do you learn those in the Bible? Well, the Bible is you know, a book with a front and a back, a beginning and an end, so it's in one sense, it's limited, but in the other, in, on the other hand, it actually, in its scope, it covers everything. The Bible claims that for itself. It says in 2 Timothy 3, 16, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture is God-breathed. We'll see this passage in some detail uh, next week. But all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for, and then it gives four things that it's useful for, for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, and righteousness. And then the next verse, verse 17, says, So that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped, and here's the key phrase for this point, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So the Bible is claiming about itself that it covers everything you've got, to, you've got to know for every good work. So we call that the sufficiency of Scripture. God, an omniscient God who knows everything, knows exactly what we need to know for life and godliness. Not just eternity, but for life now. So in the Bible, you have God communicating all that we need, the sufficiency of Scripture, in one of two ways, either in, a, in precept or in principle, precept or principle, directly or indirectly. So some passages in the Bible are precepts there, are direct commands, this is what you do. But most of the Bible is actually not like that. Most of the Bible is principle. And you apply those principles. And the great thing about principles is that those principles then can be applied to all sorts of different situations. It's one of the reasons that so much of your Bible is narrative, is story. And out of the story, and you see God's interaction with people, you now are able to cull principles from those interactions to apply to yourself, to apply to your situation. 
So God has given us the content of all of his standards of right and wrong because Scripture is sufficient, because it teaches both in precept and in principle directly and indirectly. So general revelation reveals general truth about God. Number two there, it renders mankind inexcusable before God. General revelation is always rejected. According to Romans 1 that we read earlier, people will never submit to the implications of the truths of general revelation. Therefore, they are without excuse. Now, when we say the, the implications, you know, lots of people, in fact, every survey always has, it used to be 90%. Now it's gone down because you've had this very active uh, atheistic group over the last 20 years that have been very evangelistic in their atheism. And, and so, you know, lots of people have listened to, the, you know, the, the late uh, Christopher Hitchens and some of those people have written books about this, done YouTube, you know, uh, podcasts and things like that. So there are more of those out there. They've influenced some people. But still, even with all that, it's like 80%. People still believe, believe in God. So they believe that, you know, God exists. Uh, most people do. Many believe He's the Creator. But not that he's the Lord to be obeyed. So when, when people join our church, we have that one-page application. And that one-page application, the first two questions, the very first question is, who do you believe Jesus is? And then the second question is, what do you believe Jesus has done for us? Now, who do you believe Jesus is? And... One of the things I always tell everybody when we chat about their application is one of the things I want to make sure they know about who Jesus is is that He is God, that He is fully God. Now, a lot of times, you know, folks will say rightly, He's the Son of God. That's all biblical language. That's all good. You know, He's our Savior. It's all true. So it's all good. But I make sure everybody knows He is God. And when we say son of God, we don't mean less than God. And when I teach and preach about it, most of the time I don't say son of God, even though it's perfectly good biblical language. But I don't want anybody to be confused, so I say God the Father. When I talk about Jesus, I'll say God the Son, so they know He is God. Now why? Because of this, He's the Lord to be obeyed. He's the Creator. He's God. And so there's another question down at the bottom of our one-page application that says, does Jesus have full authority over your life? And the right answer is supposed to be yes. Why? Because He's God. Because He's the, he's the Lord. So, you know, people, it's one thing to say, yeah, I believe in God. It's quite another thing to submit to the implications of that, which is He's the Lord now to be obeyed. You know, I'm just a little bit of a tangent here, but it's just kind of a pet peeve. But when our young people, so we got Joey in here, we got Deja in here. So when you guys, you know, if you date somebody, first of all, when you date somebody, you date people to look for who the Lord has for you as a partner for, for life. So we're just not into the dating kind of game, one. So you're looking for somebody who fits the profile that God gives in Scripture of a godly, a godly mate. And yet, you know, let's be honest, a lot of times we use much lesser criteria than that. 
It's just, you know, I think this person's nice looking or whatever. They're funny, which is great. You want to be attracted to the person. You want to enjoy spending time with them. But more important than all that is they fit the spiritual criteria that God gives, right? And that spiritual criteria is they're a follower of Jesus. So when I have a young person in our church and they, you know, they bring their boyfriend or their girlfriend and they introduce them to me, and later, I, I won't say it in front of you, don't worry, I won't embarrass you when you have your person there, but I'll say later, hey, so how'd you meet this person? What do you know about them? So are they a Christian? And often I'll get this answer that says, oh, they believe. I go, hold up. <laughs> believe what? Oh, they believe in God. Okay. Yeah. Give me some more. <laughs> right? Lots of people, everybody believes in God. Just about. That ain't good enough. Are they a follower of Jesus? And is it clear that they're a follower of Jesus? Do you have to guess? If you have to guess, they're not a follower of Jesus. No, for followers of Jesus, you don't have to guess. All right, so that's my little pep talk to you two, okay? If you, uh, and, and in a more general application, people do not submit to the implications of the fact that God is. They know He is, but they want to ignore those implications for themselves, and therefore they are without excuse. That's what Romans 1.20 says. So people have been given this information about God, but they reject it. And they reject its implications of his, of his lordship over their lives. They are without excuse. Now, here's what's interesting. When I say it's interesting, I, of course, I'm just, it's interesting to me. It may not be to you. But about those two words at the end of Romans 1.20, without excuse. In Greek, again, <clears throat> the word there translated without excuse comes from the word from which we get our English word, apologetics, apologetics. Now, some of you may know what that is, but that's a whole discipline in theology. When I was in seminary, I had a course that we were to take, a required course called apologetics. It's not apologizing. Apologetics means actually a defense. And apologetics is defending the faith. And an apologist, a Christian apologist, is one who defends the truth claims of, of Christianity against those who deny them. So apologetics. Uh, well, in Romans 1.20, without excuse is a translation of the Greek word from which we get apologetics. But it's the negative form of it. So it's literally, it says it's translated often without excuse. It's literally without a defense without an, apo an apologetic. Because God has made Himself known to everybody, it means no person then has a defense before God. And that's what we mean then about them being without excuse. It's inexcusable to ignore this God who has made Himself known. B, general revelation not only is always rejected by mankind, therefore it cannot bring salvation to mankind. General revelation is rejected, and even if it were accepted, there's not enough to reconcile one to God. Because it communicates enough about God to make us accountable to seek Him for salvation, 
but it does not communicate the content of the gospel itself. So that, if you're still awake and you uh, are thinking, should raise some questions in your mind then. Well, all right, what does the Bible teach about people who have never heard the gospel? People who have never heard the gospel. Now, given everything we've said here, you should be able to answer that. I'm not going to embarrass you, but I just want you to think about it. So I'm not going to ask anybody to answer, but think about what your answer would be. Well, remember, everybody, everybody has been given information about God, but what does everybody do with that information? They reject it. So they are without excuse. So what happens to the, even the person who has not heard about Jesus, what, what happens with that person? They are without excuse. They've rejected what God has given Having rejected what God has given, what would they do if God gave more? Reject that too. <laughs> so you need to understand, it should go without saying, God isn't ripping anybody off. God's never treating anyone unjustly. God has made himself known and people reject that. So do you have to hear about Jesus to be saved? Well, if you talk to Oprah, I mean, you could YouTube this too. You know, Oprah says Jesus cannot be the only way. Cannot be the only way. It's impossible. He can't possibly be the only way since not everybody's heard of him. How could he be the only way? And that's a logic that a lot of people buy into. But biblically, the Bible is saying, yeah, Jesus could be the only way because... I, God, have given general information to everybody that they've all rejected. And we will see that he gives special revelation to some. And that would include the gospel focused on Jesus. So do you have to hear about Jesus to be saved? The answer is, in fact, yes. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, says Jesus. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. So faith, that is believing, comes from the message. So yes, you must have the message and you must respond to the message. So since specific information is required, now stay with me here, and by definition of what special revelation is, not everybody receives special revelation. Everybody receives general revelation. Not everybody receives special revelation. And since special revelation is required in order to be saved, and God's not obligated to give either one to anybody, general or special, then how do you explain that God gave it to you? ever thought about that? You're, you were born where you were born. Born in, a, born in America. Born in a place where you have free access to the special message, the gospel, to hear about Jesus. And who determined that? Not you, right? 
You say, well, my parents did. Okay, well, who determined they'd be where they are? God's guiding that, that whole process. That's God's grace involved in your life that you were born where you are when you were. If you were, if you were born in a home where there was a Bible, even if people didn't open it, <laughs> but at least it was available, and it was just that big one on the coffee table, you know, that big family Bible, then God's grace has shown upon you. Clearly God's grace has shown upon all of us because we're, we're here right now tonight talking about this. So, friend, it's a matter of God's grace that He has made Himself known in the specific way through Jesus and the way of reconciliation to God, to you. He's not obligated to do that for anyone. So Acts chapter 17, back to that presentation that Paul's making to these philosophers in Athens. He says, just starts with, you know, the God who made heaven and earth and all that is, that is in them. He says there in that message, he determined the time set and the exact places where they should live. So all of that comes together to say, hey, if you know Jesus, <laughs> it's all because Jesus was coming after you. It's not because you came after Jesus. It's because He came after you. If He doesn't come after you, if he, doesn't, if he doesn't work in your life, before you ever knew Him, before you ever wanted Him, if He doesn't do all of that, then you are like everybody else. Because, of course, you, I, we are no better, are we? And we too would reject if God had not done that. It really ought to make us worship the Lord for His grace. To us. So, in the box, general revelation only communicates enough to condemn. But God has also revealed Himself specifically. <clears throat> specifically. So just like general revelation is general information to a general audience, this is specific content to a specific audience. Now, how did it happen? Here are the means. God's special revelation in the past was accomplished in different ways, in various ways. Hebrews 1, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. And we have a bunch of these ways listed there. So God supplemented general revelation with specific revelation in many ways and at different times, including, you see there, dreams, visions, angels, direct address. Now on this... I just want to comment on, on visions for a minute. You see Isaiah 1-1 there and Isaiah 6-1? Uh, those are passages where it says the prophet Isaiah, in fact, the whole book of Isaiah starts out, chapter 1, verse 1, with this is the vision of Isaiah that God gave him. So God revealed, made known, special information about himself to the prophet in a vision. Now, you have a proverb, Proverbs 29.18. It's kind of a famous proverb, the way the King James translates it. Where there is no vision, you guys ever heard this? Where there is no vision, the people perish. And so lots of people have taken that, and politicians use it, and business leaders will sometimes use it. Where there is no vision, the people perish. But I want you all to know I've got a vision for this country. And I remember Al Gore doing that at the Democratic 
national convention back in 2000 when he was running for president. So here's my vision. Or, you know, a business leader, here's my vision for the, the company. I think it's good for a politician to have a vision if it's a good one and a business leader and all of that. But a vision in the Bible is a revelation from God. And when Proverbs 29.18 says, where there is no vision, what it's saying is where there is no revelation from God, then people just run amok. The people perish. In fact, the NIV translates it this way, where there is no revelation, people cast off restraint. So one of the ways God used in the past through the prophets was, was visions. Page 54. God's special revelation culminated with Christ. When we say culminated, you know, it led all that previous stuff in the past and at different times and in various ways, all of that led up to and culminated with Christ. Christ is God's final revelation to mankind. So, can't be Muhammad. Muhammad comes 600 years after Jesus and claims to be, in Islam, the final prophet. But Christ is God's final revelation. The Old Testament pointed to Christ, and Christ is superior to all the other means of special revelation. Again, Hebrews 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things and through whom also He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. After He had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So He became as much superior to the angels as the name He has inherited is superior to theirs. So Jesus is superior to all the other prophets. Yes, He was a prophet in that He revealed, He spoke on behalf of God. Here's the difference. He is the God about whom the prophets spoke. See, the prophets spoke about God. But Hebrews is saying, He is that God. He's the God about whom those guys could only speak. He is that God. And so He could perfectly represent God and speak for God. John 1.18, No one has ever seen God but God the one and only who is at the Father's side has made Him known. Now, you see that has made him known? You guys tonight have heard that phrase, to make known. To make known is revelation. So, and in fact, I think in the King James it says that. It says that the one who's at the Father's side has revealed him. He has made him known. And the Greek word from which that made him known comes from, we get a, an English word, uh, exegesis. Uh, just like apologetics, that's not one you would use all the time. But when I was in seminary, we had to take not only apologetics class, but we had to take these exegesis classes. Greek exegesis of First Peter. And so what it meant was you were going to study First Peter, not in English, but in Greek. Now, what's exegesis mean? Well, you know, exit, so it's got the exit part in it. 
And it means, literally, exegesis means to lead out the meaning. And so when you engage in exegesis of a, a passage of Scripture, a book of the Bible, then you're engaging in lead, studying so you can lead out the meaning. And that's the word used here about Jesus with regard to making the Father known. He has led out the meaning. And of course, He could do it perfectly as no one else could do. Christ spoke through the apostles. Now we said, you know, Christ is God's final revelation. But, you know, Jesus came, He did His work, He died on the cross, He was raised, He ascended. And yet, books of the Bible were written after that. So how is He then God's final revelation? Well, yes, there were, there were these other revelations given in the books of the, of the New Testament, but they were given through Christ's authorized agents, the apostles. That's exactly what the apostles were. And in fact, as we're going to see, in order to be an apostle, you had to be one who was with the Lord and had been with Him the whole time and had seen His resurrection. So Christ spoke through the apostles. Now let's talk about the apostles for a little bit. They were, the Bible teaches, uniquely chosen. You know they were uniquely chosen for a few reasons. They're limited in, in number. They were called at various places in Scripture. They're just called the Twelve. I have a, uh, I have a book on my shelf about the Supreme Court. The title of the book is The Nine. You know, because there's there's the nine. I mean, you know, that's an exclusive group, right? When you're just the nine. Or, you know, the Beatles were the Fab Four, right? But here these, they're just the 12. And people just read the 12, and they're supposed to know who that is. Talk about an exclusive group. And then, of course, Judas Iscariot was a false apostle, betrayed Jesus, committed suicide. As we've seen on Sunday mornings in the book of Acts, he was replaced by Matthias. And so for a period of time after there was not this 12th apostle, they were just called the 11. So it's just the number, the 12, then the 11, and then it's back to the, the 12. So that's how exclusive they are. They were limited in number. And look at this in Revelation 21 and verse 14. You get to the end of human history the last book of the Bible, and in the second to the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 21. And you have the Apostle John's vision of the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. And he's given the dimensions of the city and the architecture of it and the walls. And it says this, The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. I mean, you talk about an exclusive group. So in the future, we're going to be part of a heavenly city that has the names of these 12 guys on it. Now, Nadine, yeah. thank you for reminding me. She had asked me before class started, she says, so where does Paul, the Apostle Paul, fit into this? Because, of course, he is a key figure in the New Testament. Uh, but Paul himself put, him, put himself outside the 12. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about the 12, but he also, the apostles and the 12, but he says of himself, I became apostle as one 
abnormally born. That's what he says there. So he's acknowledging that I didn't become an apostle the same way they did. They became apostles when Jesus walked the earth. They were with him. Now, he still had to meet the same qualifications, had to have seen the risen Christ, as we'll see in a minute. But, of course, he did, didn't he? Because he was on the road to Damascus, the Lord appeared to him uh, and showed himself to him. So uh, there is this little debate that people sometimes have. So who gets their name on the, you know, is it Matthias or Paul? But my understanding is, and I'm fairly confident of this, that it's Matthias, and that Paul himself recognized that, that he was, became an apostle in a, in a different, different way. But nonetheless, okay, add Paul to the mix. you got 13. The point is, it's an, exclusive, it's an exclusive group, limited in number and limited by their qualifications. We're going through the book of Acts, the first two verses of the book of Acts. In my former book, Theophilus, we've seen on Sunday mornings that former book is the Gospel of Luke, because Luke also wrote Acts, and he wrote both books to the same one, Theophilus. I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach, until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles that he had chosen. And then it was necessary to replace Judas, but when they did, notice what it says. Choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time that the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So it had to be someone who saw him alive after his crucifixion. And then Paul later says of himself in defending his own apostleship that I am a genuine apostle because, you know, it did come up. Hey, you're not really an apostle because you're not part of the original band. So in 1 Corinthians 9, he says, am I not an apostle? And then notice what comes right after it. I have seen the Lord. So I've seen uh, Jesus our Lord risen after he is now, you know, he's in heaven, but Paul has, has seen him. And so he fits that uh, criteria. Here's what that means for us, though, practically. It means you and I are not apostles. And, you know, we, I, I just want everybody to be clear on that because, yeah, yeah, every, you know, you get people who out there in the religious landscape who claim to be apostles. And there ain't no apostles. We don't meet the qualifications, and we can't do what the apostles did. In fact, take a look at the next, the next page, page 55. Because the apostles were uniquely commissioned, so they were specially chosen, but they are also uniquely commissioned. Now, what were they able to do? Well, one of the things they were able to do was oversee the production of Scripture. So, you know, you got these people out there that say, you know, anything the apostles can do, we can do. Well, good luck with that. They oversaw the production of Scripture. You notice it says there, see John 14, 15. You see that? It's actually, you could say 14, 15, and 16, because in chapters 14, 15, and 16 of the Gospel of John, Jesus talks there on the night before he is crucified. Remember John 13 is where the last, they have the Last Supper. Communion is instituted. That's the night before Jesus dies. And then he comes to the next chapter. Chapter 14 begins this way. Stop letting your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And now Jesus starts to prepare them for, hey, I'm, I'm going. 
and, but don't let your hearts be troubled. And he goes on in John 14, 15, and 16 to talk about the Holy Spirit. That I am still going to be with you, but I'm not going to be physically with you. I'm going to send you another comforter. I have been a comforter for you. I'm going to send you another comforter, the Holy Spirit. And then in those passages, Jesus says some interesting things to them. In John 16 and verse 13, John 16, 13, he says, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. Now, I sometimes hear people quote that and apply it to us, that He'll guide us into all truth. But who's Jesus talking to on that night? Right? He's talking to the twelve. Uh, and he says he's going to guide you into all truth. Well, why are they going to need to be guided into all truth in kind of a special way? <laughs> Jesus says in John 14, verse 26, John 14, 26, the Holy Spirit will teach you all things, and get this, will remind you of everything I have said to you. Those guys were given the gift of perfect recall of what Jesus said. You know this isn't about you and me because we forget stuff. Now why? Because they were going to oversee the production of Scripture. You know, John is writing that in the Gospel of John. He's writing it years later. But he's quoting these things that Jesus said years later. Same thing with the, the Apostle Matthew. So they're, they're given support. And then they, as they go and proclaim the message, just verbally proclaiming the message, before the New Testament is actually written and produced, they're proclaiming what Jesus said. But they're doing that from memory. But they have perfect recall. Jesus said, this is going to be a gift that you're going to have from the Holy Spirit. The apostles were uniquely commissioned not only to oversee the production of Scripture, but be to authenticate the message of Scripture. Now, how did they do that? Well, that's how they did all these miracles. It authenticated who they were as representatives of Christ when they were able to do these miracles. 2 Corinthians 12, 12, you see it there. The Apostle Paul says, I persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle, including signs, wonders, and miracles. Now, I just want you to think about this for a second. The signs of a, the marks of a true apostle. If everybody can do signs, wonders, and miracles, then they can't function of mark, as marks of a true apostle, right? <laughs> they must be unique things they're able to do. So all of the, you know, the guys on TV and all that that fake these miracles, that's what they do. For all those years, Oral Roberts, you know, was on the airwaves and he was saying, expect a miracle. Well, you know, a one of the things about miracles is they're like unusual. So if you expect them, and not only are they unusual, there are only certain people who God had commissioned to actually do them. They're marks of an apostle. The writer of Hebrews says, This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those, notice by whom? By those who heard Him. God testified to it 
by signs, wonders, and various miracles. Well, who, but who was doing that? Those who, those who heard him. So the apostles, guys, were able to do things that we cannot, like write scripture and do miracles, including when we talk about those miracles, raising people from the dead. We go through the book of Acts, we get to Acts chapter 9, you're going to see Peter telling a girl to, to get up and walk. She's dead. He raises her from the dead. Paul does that in Acts chapter 20 to a man. None of those charlatans who are faking things on TV has ever been able to do that. Ever. And you've never seen one, there's never been one, because they can't do it. <clears throat> now, sometimes you'll hear them say, well, you know, there was a, there, I did hear some stories in Africa where that happened. It's always someplace where it can't be verified. See, the miracles of Christ and the miracles of the apostles were wide open and public and verifiable. So Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20 says, The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Equating what the apostles were able to do with us is the great mistake of the Pentecostal movement, <clears throat> which I grew up in. But this is the heart of the mistake. If you read it in the Bible, you must be able to do it. And the Bible actually has some special people who are actually able to do stuff we're not called to do. But our Pentecostal friends failed to make that distinction. They failed to distinguish between the Bible describing things and prescribing things. The Bible describes all kinds of things that you're not necessarily going to do. You know, here in a few weeks, we're going to go to Acts chapter 3. In Acts chapter 3, at the very beginning, it says, Peter and John went to the temple. Okay? Does that mean you're supposed to go to the temple? You're going to have a problem with that since the temple doesn't exist anymore. The Bible's not telling you to go to the temple. It's telling you they went to the temple. It's describing what they did. It's not prescribing what you're supposed to do. That's the nature of narrative, and the book of Acts is a narrative. And much of your Bible is, is narrative. All right, the purpose of special revelation. The definition is this. It is to enable us to know God's will and do it. The Bible is the vehicle of special revelation through which God communicates His will to us today. 2 Timothy 3 that I quoted earlier. How is it accomplished? Since the purpose of the Bible is to enable us to know God's will and do it, it's necessary for us to understand how it happens. It happens by, here's a fancy term, theological term, illumination. Enables us to know God's will. Illumination is the act of the Holy Spirit whereby He enables believers to understand the significance of God's Word. We are illumined only as we have properly interpreted the Scriptures. Now that word, illumination, to illumine something, right? If you have a projector, it, projectors and their brightness are known by lumens. So, you, so it might be 1,500 lumens or 2,000 or whatever. But that's brightness, light. If you illumine a room, it means you turn the light on. And so illumination means the Holy Spirit turns the light on. For Christians who have the Holy Spirit. So when you read the Bible... He's not giving you the meaning of the Bible. You get the meaning by studying it. You actually have to do hard work to like put it in context and study it. 
But in the end, this surprises people, but it's true. Unbelievers can actually, if they want to do the work and read the Bible and put it in context, they can get the meaning. You know, an unbeliever can read 1 Corinthians 15. Christ died for your sins. They can read that. They say, okay, there was a guy named Christ. He died, and he claimed it was for our sins. Right? They can get the meaning, but do they care about it? By definition, they don't care about it. That's why they're an unbeliever. But the Holy Spirit turns the light on for believers so that, so that we grasp the significance, the importance of what we study in, in Scripture. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in illumination. So uh, that study thing, I just want to beat that a little more and we'll be done here in a second. But here you guys are, you got a notebook in front of you. You know, I spend an hour, I, you know, every week and we're going to do that for 28 sessions. And, you know, on Sundays, you know, I go for 40 minutes and you got an outline and, you know, we do all of this work. Why do we do all of that? Well, because that's the way you get the meaning. You study. You actually have to put the work in. Too many people think that the Bible is kind of like a rabbit's foot if you just rub it, you know, and it'd be a lot easier. Or can't God just give us some spiritual wiffle dust and we'll just, you know, it'll happen. Oh, and, and this is what happens then. People think that God just sort of leads you to the meaning without doing the work. So have you ever been in a Bible study, and I put that in quotes, study where you actually haven't actually studied the Bible. People just kind of go around the room and they say, hey, read this passage. So Dave, will you read this passage? And Nadine, will you read this passage? And then what does that mean to you? <laughs> Not to be unkind, but I don't care what it means to you. <laughs> I just care what it meant, right? And how am I going to get what it meant? I have to do the work. I have to, I have to study it. All right, top of page 56, a biblical mindset enables us to carry out God's will. God's desires as children approach the decisions of life, of life with a Bible-soaked logic. As we learn of God through His Word, we begin to view life as He does. We'll begin to be able to make decisions that honor Him. The key to making proper God-honoring decisions is knowing God's Word and learning to think as God does. It's the communication of the truth of God's Word to the mind, not feelings or experiences that accomplishes God's purpose. All right. Thanks for letting me go over two minutes. Have a good week. See you this Lord's Day.